right, so if if you're familiar with recovery, they 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 pinpoint the problem, the root of the problem as obsession with self. That's the general way it's held in recovery. That we're extremely self-centered, and that's that we think is the root of the problem. Yes, and if you look at your life, for me, uh, I had alcoholism, and then my solution to alcoholism was alcohol. When I drank, I got relief from alcoholism, which is the real root of the disease. The drinking and the doing drugs and the acting out is just symptoms of the of the disease in place. The original disease is being, to me, it is an obsession with self. It's identification as self, which is, means a lot different. It may sound like you're picky, you know, semantics, but it, it's a huge different thing to be obsessed with self and or to be identified as a self. Because when you're identified as a self, you don't know it, yeah? You don't know you're identified as a self. And so I believe the obsession with self that our minds do every day is to reinforce the identification as self, yes? It's like it says in the book, uh, please relieve us of the bondage to self. I would say the bondage to self or the bonding agent is the obsession with the idea of being Paul or Mary or Steve, yes? That constant obsession, it's like all the thoughts are orbiting, orbiting around this very small planet called Paul. Yeah. So I would say that the obsession with self is the way the identification as self is reinforced. It's almost like listening to a radio station 24-7, K-Paul, yes? So all the time, 24-7, it's all about you. Yeah, 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 yeah. That would be, if that was heard and listened to, that would be easily imply that you're a self, yes? And so the narrating, the, the yapping going on in one's head all the time has a purpose, and it's to reinforce the identification as self. I don't believe the problem is obsession. I think it's identification as. Yeah. And if you look at identification, I mean, this, this, they used to have a couple of horror movies where there's a, a lady who gets uh, very obsessed with a starlet, yes? And so she starts dressing like the starlet, and she tries to look up the starlet's boyfriends and tries to go out with them. She dyes her hair, does everything, and then basically at the point she starts killing the boyfriends, and then she wants to, she wants to kill the starlet so she can become the starlet, yes? Now you would say, that is one motherfucking crazy girl, yeah? I mean, that is an obsession gone wild, yeah? But the thing is, I love cocaine. Yeah, but no matter how much I did coke, I never became coke. Yeah, I never became cocaine. I never thought I was cocaine. <laughs> no matter how deluded I got, I never crossed that line and identified as coke. Yeah. <laughs> so the obsession is like a minor league baseball game compared to the identification. Identification is so far, so past obsession because. In the identification, you will think you're the one who's obsessed. Yes? Obsessions will come and go, but the identification always stays in place. You always feel like it's you. Yeah? Forty different problems, but the same one you. Yeah? Millions of thoughts, but you're the thinker of them all. Yeah? It's insane, man. So, to me, the identification as self is the root of the irritability, restlessness, and discontentment that we suffer from. And, of course, when you're irritable, restless, and discontent, you're going to seek a solution. You're going to seek a relief. Now, let's say you're identified as self, and you feel the irritable, restlessness, and discontent. What are you going to rely on for, for advice about the solution? 
You're going to rely on self, yes? You're identified as self. So the, let's say the identification of self is producing the effects we call the problem, and yet we'll go to the problem for a solution. Yeah? Don't you? You go to the problem for a solution to the problem. <laughs> That's a very big problem if you, if you get caught in that loop. If you have a problem and you're starting to feel the effects of it and you want relief and yet you go to the problem to tell you how to get relief, that's a really big problem. Yeah? So the whole point is the alcohol, the alcoholism tells you that the best idea, even though there's a wisdom that it isn't, is to get loaded. Because once you get loaded, it's like here you are, your mind's driving you crazy, and then it Let's say on a Monday, a Monday you go to work, and the mind starts telling you everyone at the job doesn't like you. Yeah? It starts telling you, man, they're all conspiring. You're going to be fired by Friday. Yeah? So now Monday you're feeling uncomfortable with your workmates and everything. You go home that night, you sit there and think about it. Yeah, I can see they're setting me up. Yeah, I'm going to get fired by Friday. So Tuesday you walk in, you're not that happy with all the people, and basically you leave at lunchtime, let's say. And then you go home and you call up a lot of people and you tell them, I know they're getting ready to fire me. And the person says, yeah, I think it's true. And you're listening to this false advertising. And then maybe Thursday you quit the job because you want to preempt the firing. So you say, fuck it, I don't need this job, and you quit it. Yeah. Now you're sitting, you're sitting with yourself alone and right. <laughs> and the head brings you to a position that we all end up, and, it, and it's fuck it. Yeah? You basically just say, fuck it. And as soon as you say, fuck it, and you believe it, the mind produces a solution to it. Why not get fucking loaded? What's the point? Yes? Against all evidence contrary, all the experience of you getting your ass kicked, it has no defense against that advertising. And then it always brings you to a point of, fuck it, and then it gives you its solution, which jackpots us unbelievably, yeah? So here, how are you going to have immunity to the disease if you're identified as the disease. That's why when you're truly identified as a disease, that's why we have to go into programs. We need to be supervised. We need walls. I spent two years in a program called Delancey Street. They have a, they have a chapter in New York City. Two years because I couldn't live. I was totally uncivilized out there. I needed constant supervision to keep myself away from me. Yeah? I needed walls and discipline and structure. As soon as I left there, I got loaded again. As soon as I left. As soon as I walked out of that program, that week, I got loaded again. Yeah. While I was in the program, and it looked like the only solution was to stay institutionalized the rest of my life. Because I, you know, I'm not proud of it, but I thrive in an institutional setting. I do really good. I went back to college. I had friends in the program. I had a, p a position of respect. But... I don't want to be supervised my whole life. I don't want to live in a prison. I don't want to live in an institution, yes? So I wanted to learn how I can live freely. Yeah? I never, ever, ever got long-lasting relief from the problem as the problem. Yeah? Until I started entertained that I'm not that which I'm identified as, then I started to get radical relief. So here, it says in our book, being convinced, and right before the resentment inventory, it says, being convinced, which means to believe with certainty, yes? Convinced means you feel in your gut from your own life experiences. Being convinced that self 
manifested in various ways is what has defeated us. It's a really important statement in the book. It's being convinced that self manifested in all these different ways is what has defeated us. We will now look at its common manifestations in our life. Its meaning self. So self and us are two different things, right? In his point of view. He's saying, being convinced that self defeated us. Now, I know how self defeated me. I was identified as it. That's how it defeated me. And if we looked in this room and asked everyone to tell, uh, to share what self defeated them, we'd all have the same answer. It would be myself, yeah? If I asked you, you'd say, myself defeated me. If I asked Deb, it would be myself defeated me. If I asked myself, it would be myself defeated me. Yeah? So it's not the self that defeats us. It's the my, yeah? M-Y. Because yourself doesn't defeat me. I have an immunity to yourself, basically. I do. You can tell me that you're having a terrible day, and you'll be totally convinced you're having a terrible day. It doesn't cause me to have a terrible day. It really doesn't. I may have some compassion for you, but basically I could care less, people. Yeah? I have an immunity to your problems, and I have immunity to your feelings, and I have an immunity to your thoughts, but I don't have an immunity to my thoughts. I don't have an immunity to my feelings, and I definitely don't have an immunity to my problems. What's the difference? Yeah? Maybe your problems with a cat, my problems with a dog. It's just substitutions of objects. The same dilemma is in place. I have an immunity to a problem when it's yours, and I have no immunity to the same problem when it's mine. The problem isn't the problem. It's the identification with it. Yes? It's when something is claimed to be yours or about you, you're in, a, you're in a relationship with that. You're immediately bonded to it. The same thing with thoughts. Now, you come, we come into AA. I don't know what your experience was, but when I came into AA, I sat around and listened for a few months. And I felt very terminally unique when I came into AA. I really believed no one felt like I felt. I really believed no one thought like I thought, and no one had done the heinous things in life that I had done. Yeah? So I sat in the rooms, and people were sharing their feelings, their thoughts, and their reactions in life. And after a few months, I came to two conclusions. Either they have my feelings, my thoughts, and my reactions, or they're not my feelings, my thoughts, and my reactions. They're alcoholic feelings, and they're alcoholic thoughts, and they're alcoholic reactions. And I realized I don't identify with who you are, I identify with what has taken you over. Yeah? Alcoholism, like a parasite, has taken you over like the host. Yeah? You and I have been a host to a mental parasite called alcoholism. And so I do not identify with Dennis as Dennis. I identify with what's taken Dennis over. And that's what happens when we come to meetings. We identify with the people who have been taken over by the same parasite. If a normie walks in here and we say one of our horrendous jokes, they're flipped out totally. And we're all laughing. Why is that? Because they have no identification with what we're talking about because they haven't been taken over by the same parasite. So we've been taken over by a parasite called alcoholism. And the parasite, obviously, if you've been taken over by it, it's a hostile parasite. It's not a very beneficial one to you, is it? 
Once it starts riding you, it's a rough ride. <laughs> it's like dancing with a gorilla. You're not going to stop until the gorilla stops. <laughs> You're just like, it's just going to use you up. <laughs> so, so what would happen if you were taken over by a hostile parasite? If you were taken over by a hostile parasite, your first reaction was... Would, would be probably to throw the parasite off, yes? If you felt that something foreign to you had grabbed you and was treating you really bad, I would imagine your natural reaction was to throw it off. Yeah? Knowing this, the parasite has an incredible strategy. Yeah? It knows it's fucking hostile, and it knows it has to cause the host to succumb to its takeover. Yes? It has to be cooperative a little bit, and so what it does is convinces us that we're it. Yeah? The, the disease of alcoholism, you can't take an x-ray of. You can't see it on an MRI. You can see its effects on livers and other organs, but you can't see alcoholism. It's not like you see a cancer cell. Yeah? It's not like you see something else happening, polio. You don't see it in the body. It's a mental disease. So let's just say, you and I, the feeling that you have as being you, and the feeling that I have as being me, is produced by the brain. Yeah. When you were a baby, when you were born, for the first few months, you had no idea that you were someone. You didn't see your mother as different than you. It's only after months of being here that the mental process starts producing a sense or a feeling of being a separate, long-lasting, independent entity, a body. An identification as the body. Yeah? So when that started to happen, yes. it started to promote you and started to, the selfing started to occur and we became, our minds became identified with what the mental process was presenting us. Yeah? Now, if the mental process has alcoholism, what you're going to be identified with is an alcoholic self. The only difference with other people is they don't have alcoholism. They're identified as a self. We're identified as an alcoholic self, which has been under study for a while. We've recognized the parasite of alcoholism, yes? It's described in a big book exactly what it's like to be taken over by alcoholism. And it also describes what it's like when you start becoming free from the takeover. Yeah, it's beautiful. So here you go, the hostile takeover, the parasite convinces us that we're the parasite. What happens when you're identified with the parasite? You cannot entertain being free of it. You cannot entertain being free of the parasite because you're taking yourself to be the parasite, yeah? So the best you can come up with is therapy for it, Maybe getting it some esteem, called self-esteem. Maybe civilizing it. Maybe socializing it. Maybe you'll have one month long relationship before it explodes. Maybe at the next picnic you won't flip out. These are the levels of success we start wishing for. I mean, I, I remember when I was young, I was thinking I was going to be a marine biologist. After a few years of alcoholism, my idea of success was not to be arrested. <laughs> if I wasn't pot for that week, I felt it was a good week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we say in San Francisco, <laughs> your bottom is when you couldn't lower your standards quick enough. <laughs> Life catches you with your pants down. You can't pull them up, and boom, it finally collapses in on you. 
So this thing, this parasite, <laughs> it convinces you you're it, yes? When you become identified with it, it short-circuits the mind's ability to entertain freedom from it. Because now it tries to entertain freedom for it, yeah? Because it's identified as it. You see the difference? It's a very supremely, very powerful difference. If the head is identified as the parasite, the ability to entertain true freedom from it cannot be entertained. Because you can't entertain being free from yourself. What happens with people in long-term recovery who get to the end of their rope? They don't drink again. They kill themselves. Because they think the only way to get some peace is to end it. Yeah? They don't see it as a foreign installment. Because they're identified as it. The whole point is to, if you can entertain, you may possibly not be that. The next thing the mind can entertain is, I could possibly be free from it. Not therapize it. Not get a little bit more links on my leash. Yeah, Not maybe a larger cell. Maybe a nicer mattress in the cell. Yeah, those things. But actual radical freedom from it. Yeah? So... After years of being in sobriety, I was introduced to this idea. Yes? And I call it, what I call it, I entertained it. It just hit me. Someone shared something, and it was talking about, why not, instead of looking for a new way of meditating, just ask who's the meditator. Let's find out who the hell it is that thinks needs to meditate so much. And I, when I looked, I didn't see anyone in there. <laughs> there was no Paul there. It was just a stream of thinking. Yes? Selfing, selfing, selfing. And you know, you ever see when you look at a helicopter, or a, and it, the blades are going, and there's like two blades, but when they're moving so fast, it looks like a solid thing? You ever seen that optical illusion? It's moving so fast, it looks like it's just one. Yeah? But it's movement. So the mind is selfing, and it creates, it makes this optical illusion on your screen that there's a self. Yeah? And the obvious, the, the self is totally identified as a body. That's its whole reference point of being real. And so let's say, like in, in the big book it says, all right, why do you and I have so much fear? Yes? It's a very important question in the fear of inventory. It says, why do you have so much fear? Before we get into the fear, why do you have so much fear? It doesn't let us answer it, which is great because we would have written novels, why we think we're in fear. It says, isn't it because self-reliance has failed us? Yeah. So the system of relying on self is a failed system. Yeah. It's never going to be fixed by the product of it, which is self. <laughs> self can't get out of self. That's the freaking dilemma. Yeah. So while you're believing you're getting out of self, if you're identified as self, that's still being in self. <laughs> so all the solutions and all the adjectives about the solutions, everyone may have a complete feeling about the description of the problem, but not many of us have a complete feeling about the description of the solution in the book. Many of us are not fighting, not, the, the cease fighting everything and anyone has not become stabilized. Yeah? The idea of being placed in a position of neutrality with no thought or effort on our part has not become so. That the problem will not exist for us, which is an incredible solution, is not being traveled as. So we have total, complete identification with the problem, but we don't have identification with the solution. Why? I believe it's because we're still identified as the problem. 
So, okay. So how does the selfing keep going? Simply, this way. This is what happens. The selfing's main strategy, yeah, this mental process, is to claim. So instead of noticing a body, it's my body. Instead of living in time, it's my time. Instead of seeing the thoughts, I'm the thinker of the thoughts. So every activity of life, you now become the doer of it and the haver of it. And you know what? The most primary activity of life, which is conscious contact, which is seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, touching, which is how we're engaged here, yes? We're seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, touching, and we see thoughts like I would see a bird fly by the window. In Buddhism, the mind is the sixth sense, yeah? So the mind sees thoughts like the eye sees a bird fly by. So here's conscious contact, conscious contact, spirit becoming in contact with things through us, yes? And the biggest statement in AA says the how and why of the whole program, the whole freaking program, which is a pretty comprehensive statement, yes? How and why means the whole enchilada, basically. It says the whole enchilada of the program is for us to quit playing God, yeah? Because it doesn't work. Well, let's just call being this God, you want to call it that? Whatever, you want to call it the great spirit? But it's demonstrating in something... I should backtrack, yes. All right, let me give you an example. My Uncle Fred, who I really liked, yes, when I was young. He died. He passed away when I was about nine years old. And so my mother took me to the, to the funeral, and it was a wake, and then there was an open casket. So she said, do you want to say goodbye to Uncle Fred? I wasn't really that keen on it, you know, but she led me up to it, and I looked into the casket, and I saw Uncle Fred, but I had a very strong hit, that ain't Uncle Fred. Yes? The body was there, but... There was something missing that I was taken to be the body. But without it in the body, it was obviously not the body. So when I looked at it, I saw, that's not Uncle Fred. It's just a freaking body, yeah? And I was seeing Uncle Fred as a body because I was taking myself to be a body. But the animating principle is more Uncle Fred than the body ever was, yeah? And you could have taken Uncle Fred's eye, which was never going to see ever again as Uncle Fred, yeah? And take that eye and put it in a live body, and that eye would see. Yeah? But in, in the dead body, it wasn't seeing. So does the eye actually see? Or does something see through the eye? Does the ear actually hear? Or does this just facilitate what we call hearing? What's actually hearing? Is it Paul? Or is it spirit? I would say it's spirit. I would say the interpretation of spirit hearing by the mind is called Paul. Yeah? So hearing, feeling, tasting, touching, smelling gets claimed by my head and says, I'm the seer. I'm the one who's hearing. I as this, yeah? I as Paul am hearing, which is totally against the evidence. I am Paul is seeing. Let's say you have a feeling, and then you'll say, oh, I didn't want to have that feeling. But you already felt the feeling. Yeah? The conscious contact happens first. The mental process claims it. And says, I'm seeing. And that's like claiming the act of God expressing itself here. We claim it as a verb that we're doing. You can't play bigger God than that. Yeah? The whole root of the whole program is to quit playing God. That's the initial step of playing God. You're claiming 
the evidence of God, the Spirit having contact here, as you're the one that's doing it. Jesus Christ. It blows my mind, man. <laughs> we go this every night. You don't even pump your heart, do you? Everything about the body, except for the breath, is totally involuntary. And the breath is only half voluntary. Something knows better to give you any real power. Yeah? Or you'd be dead. If it was about you pumping the heart, you would have forgot this morning, wouldn't you? You'd be dead. You'd be dead. Pumping the blood, you would have all gotten busy watching the game, and there you'd there it is. And then maybe, well, are you really doing your digestion? Is there like a lineup? You know, the burrito you had Thursday is here. It's number three. And then that pizza from Saturday is way back here. I'll get to it later. I've got to go home and digest. You know? I've, been, I've been lax on my digesting. I've forgotten for a few days. It's not like a chore you do, is it? All you do is bring the food to the mouth, and from there on, you really have nothing to do with it. Yeah? Something digests it. Something is, is allowing all this to occur. And yet, a very subtle activity of the body, which is the brain having thoughts, you believe you're the thinker of it. You believe you're doing that, and yet you can't even take a shit when you want to. Yeah? You can't even take a shit when you want to, but you believe you're the thinker of thoughts that can't be seen, they can't be weighed, but you believe you're doing that. It's mind-boggling. It's so totally insane. <laughs> so let's say you think you're the thinker of the thoughts that are going in your head. Yes? What happens? Let's say there's a wall here, we'll put a word up. Money. Yes? We'll put a word up, money. We'll put career up there, and let's say we put sex up there. And everyone in the room would have a meaning for that, right? If you didn't have any money, it would mean more to someone who has money, maybe. Yeah? But everyone would have a reaction to those words. Money, sex, and career. Yeah? Now, weigh it. Oh, money, sex, and career. Weighs, you know, it's important, so what? I tell you, now we'll change the weight totally by adding one word. My money. <laughs> my sex. Whoa. My career. Whoa. You see? You see the difference? Could you imagine if you could just see thoughts as thoughts instead of yours? You would travel so much lighter here. Seriously. <laughs> the weight isn't something you got at a certain time in your life that's been weighing you down the same weight. It's the activity of claiming everything. That's the weight of your life. Yeah? If you weighed thoughts, let's just say they had an imaginary weight. Let's say each thought weighed an ounce. Yeah? Supposedly you have 70,000 thoughts a day, which is an amazing amount. But let's just say for us, in New Jersey, we have 1,000 thoughts a day. <laughs> so you have 1,000 thoughts a day. Now weigh them. There are, that's 1,000 ounces, yeah? Now you and I have been traveling with 1,000 ounces for quite a while. We don't even notice it, yeah? When you're walking up a hill, you don't feel like there's any extra luggage to you. You're just used to traveling with 1,000 ounces. Now let's, what would happen if we made each thought a pound? And the same hill would be incredibly difficult, wouldn't it, if you had a thousand pounds going on. The my is the pound, yeah? My. Because every thought that's seen and is claimed by the parasite, it becomes your thought, yes? So out of all the thoughts, there's just one thinker of them, yeah? And you're that. So you're the haver of every thought. 
and your mind then sh- says that they're good and bad. This one I can't share to anyone. I got to wait home to get to the porno later. Put that here. This and that. Then a lot of selfing goes on, managing your thoughts. Yes. It's not managing thoughts. What you're managing are your thoughts. Because you're not managing anyone else's thoughts, are you? It's your thoughts. That's the act of being identified. You can see it during the day. You can see the God playing. When you wake up and your head tells you how the day's going to be, that's God playing. Yeah. Have you ever noticed in a day, let's say it was like a, a, a card game, Yeah. a day. You get the 8 a.m. card when? At 8 a.m., yeah? You don't get dealt the 4 p.m. card at 8 a.m., do you? You get the 8 a.m. card. Now, no matter how much you want to know what the 4 p.m. card is, you don't know, actually, until 4 p.m. comes, yeah? But what does your head do when it sees the first deuce at 8 a.m.? It says the whole game's going to suck, yeah? Doesn't it? It tells you what's the fucking point. I know exactly what's going to happen today. Isn't that God playing? To me, that's a huge act of God playing. And then, you actually play God with God. Who informs you if you're getting closer to God? God or you? Who tells you how you're doing in your pursuit of God? God or you? I would say selfing is playing God with God. That's why in the third step... After a few years of the program, and it says, we're going to surrender whatever to a God or of our own understanding, I'd rather know a God of its own understanding. Because if it's a God of your own understanding, it's going to be a very small and infrequent and weak God. The selfing is going to be the big God. But if it's a God of its own understanding, it will reveal to you what it is. Instead of you knowing what it is, it will reveal to you what it is totally different way of living, yeah? And I found this way of living produces lightness, yes? A traveling lighter. It doesn't say the geography of your life is going to change. If you're going to get fired at a job, maybe you will. If you're going to get an illness, maybe you will. If you're going to have kids, maybe you will. But it will change how you travel over the geography of one's life, yeah? Every day, every day there'll be a traveling lighter. And you'll know the problem by the solution. By the absence of self, you'll know the self was the true problem. Not obsession with it, but identification as it. Oh, I should do that chair, couch thing. Oh, yes, yes, the couch. All right. I'm going to talk about a couple of things that I've seen, how mine works. Yeah, maybe you'll identify with it. I don't know. But one of them is a here-there, I call it, the here-there. And we're in a perfect place for the here-there. Because let's say I'm I'm in my little one-bedroom apartment, everything's fine. Yeah, having a good morning. And there's a magazine, and I start paging through the magazine. And then one of the pictures of the magazine is a, a, one, a full-page layout of a beautiful couch. Yeah. Now, I look around my one-bedroom apartment, and I don't have a couch. I'm couchless, really. And I was quite happy, but now that I've seen this couch, I start feeling not happy because I don't have a couch. Because I think if I had a couch, I'd have a girlfriend to sit on the couch. And I bet you I'd conceive my first child on that couch. Yes? So now the couch is becoming mythically important to me. And the absence of the couch is causing a lot of disrest. 
unrest, yeah? When I was totally okay before I even thought of the couch, now that I realize I don't have a couch in my life, it's like not a life worth living, yeah? And I start thinking about all the people who have couches and haven't told me how important it is to have a couch. So I start resenting them. <laughs> and now I start working towards the day I can get a couch, yeah? Not knowing that every moment that I view my life as couchless, it's not enough anymore. I'm not happy with that moment. I'll only be happy with that moment when I receive the couch. Yeah? So now I start working and save money to get the couch. And so right now I'm in a couchless state. That's the here. And it's not satisfying for me. The there is the couch. When I get there, and you can put anything you want in it, finish your job, marry, whatever, have your first kid. But there's all these different there's, but the there is going to be better than here. Yet the there isn't there yet. Yeah? <laughs> You're here. So here I go. I work really hard. And then the day comes when they're going to deliver the couch. And I'm really excited. Calling up all my friends. They have no interest in it. Because they've had couches and they realize what happens. I'm saying, yeah, come on. And I make room for it. And I hear the truck and I run out. And I've got, you know, tea for them. And yes, bring that couch in here. Get it in here. I've been waiting for this couch. They bring it in. They put it down. And I sit on it. And it's a really nice couch. I feel really good for about five minutes. Then I look around the room and I go, Jesus, i got to get a matching rug. Yeah? So the mythical there, as soon as I arrive there, it becomes another here. And I, now another mythical there gets presented. And it's like a carrot in front of a horse. And I live on incessant hope that someday, not now, and at some time, not now, something's going to be great. Yes? It's going to be great. But it's not great now, but it's going to be great. <laughs> That's the whole thing. If you ask someone, they say, if they're not, having, they're not feeling well, and they, I say, hey, are you okay? And they go, no, I will be okay. Yeah? It's never I'm okay. It's I will be. It's going to take some, it's not now, but I will be. I will be okay. You don't see it? It's slavery. <laughs> It's a form of slavery, constantly going on incessant hope and never arriving. If you looked at the map of your life, your, the mythical theirs very rarely get realized, and the denied now is constantly the state you're in. An unconscious or conscious denial of what's happening now. Yeah? There's another one I always love is what's not happening. If you could entertain this, I bet you tomorrow you'd feel a lot better. What's not happening? Fear is a valid emotion, yes? When something is threatening me now, like my life or something, an emotion called fear would come up. My, my adrenals would let go, adrenaline would pump in my body. I'd either take flight or fight, yeah? That's a valid emotion. What most people are calling fear is mental anxiety. Yeah? You're worried about something... That's not happening. Yeah? Your head is thinking, so let's say there's something important in your life. Yeah? So you take that importance and you put it in the future. And then what happens? You're concerned about how that goes, which you have no control over. What you do is think about it a lot. Yeah? You think about Jesus. So in what's not happening, anything can happen. In what's not happening, anything can happen. You can be destitute next week. You can. You can be very well off right now, but you could be destitute next week. You could be have a, a, a terminal disease. Your girlfriend 
Next week could be sleeping with your best friend. You may want to have a preemptive resentment now. Yeah? I know what you're thinking of. You're thinking of sleeping with my girlfriend next Friday. I've called the hotels. You've made a reservation. <laughs> so here, the head is obsessing over what's not happening. So it's going into nothing because it's not happening. And there's no airport in what's not happening. You can't land there. There's no five-star hotels. GPS doesn't work there. There's no addresses. There's no, you know, it's not happening. <laughs> but the head's going there, and it is producing an effect now on the body. Yeah? You could be sitting here right in this room, and I may be boring you to death. You may not like me. All those things should be happening. But there is no reason for fear to arise. Yes? But if you're in a lot of mental anxiety, it's just an indication you're not here for all intents and purposes. You're somewhere in what's not happening. Yes? And it's very... Isn't it hard to tell people how bad what's not happening is for you? Because to them, it's truly not happening. Yeah? So no matter how much you try to convince them, I'm really having a fucked up day about next week. They just don't get it that often, yes? Because they're having a fuck-up day about next month, yeah? No one's really ever usually worried about the same what's not happening. <laughs> so here, what would be the solution to all the ailments thinking about what's not happening brings? What would be the solution? A very high form of therapy? A two-year commitment to a meditation retreat? Or maybe just a recognition it's not happening? What more would you need to do to counteract the effects of what's not happening, than to realize it's not happening. Yeah? What more would do you need to do? <laughs> what? Yeah, I could be a therapist, and my therapy would be, I'll help you with what's not happening. <laughs> the session would be over in one minute. They'd come in, and you'd have a big story about what's not happening, and I'd say, you know what? It's not happening. Bye. <laughs> 150 bucks. Next person. I, years of thinking about it. If one second, the solution. It's not happening. Can you bring it? Can I see it? Can I feel it right now? Can I taste it? Can I touch it? Can I smell it? No. It's thought about. And in the thinking about it, it produces an effect. Yes? And what is identified as the thinker. So you're producing, in a sense, your own state. The parasite is producing the state you're in right now. And it's not producing it by responding to what's happening. It's producing it by reactions to what's not happening. It's such a beautiful solution. It's not happening. What more do you need to do with that? Nothing. What better solution than that? It doesn't take any time to stop what's not happening. Because it's not happening. Yeah? If something was happening, it would take time to stop it. Yeah? If something was happening right now, it would take a little time to stop it. But what's not happening takes no time. It's just a recognition. And if you start recognizing it, you'll get into the habit of it, and you'll be able to tell what's not happening and what's happening. Because what's happening has an ingredient what's not happening has, doesn't have, which is it's happening. This is happening. You're hearing it, seeing it, feeling it, tasting it, touching it. This is what's happening. This is the anchor that produces an immunity to all the thoughts about what's not happening. It's the recognition of what's happening. To be aware of the seeing and the hearing and the feeling and the tasting and the touching 
if you're aware of the seeing and the hearing and the feeling and the tasting and the touching as you, you'll be unaware of it. Yes? All the seeing, hearing, feeling and tasting and touching will just be the foundation to think about what's not happening. You can't get relief from an imaginary problem by a solution. You can't. You cannot apply a solution to an imaginary problem. The only solution is to realize it's imaginary. Yeah? Once the realization that's an imaginary, it's, that's the solution. But if you apply a solution to something that's imaginary, that's a bigger problem. Yeah? And what is really what we call playing God, what is that but the second aspect of the first step? Yeah, The unmanageability. And then, I don't know about you, but when I first came to AA, when I read the first step, it sounded like this to me. It was, I'm powerless over alcohol, and I used to throw drugs, too, in there. I'm powerless over alcohol and drugs, and my life became unmanageable. And it sounded like my unmanageability was the effect of my drug and alcohol use, yeah? That's what it sounded like to me. It sounded like, all right, the cause of my unmanageability was the drinking and using. Yeah? It sounded like that. But then when you go to how it works... At the bottom of how it works, it says, you, have, you and I have to be convinced of three pertinent ideas. Yeah? And our experiences before and after, meaning before and after sobriety, verify these ideas. And the first idea is that we're alcoholics and we cannot manage our own lives. Now that sounds totally different to me than the first step. Yeah? In the first step, it sounds like that unmanageability was caused by my drinking. And so I believe that if I stop drinking... None of those problems I thought I had while I was drinking would be there. And it was an incredibly rude awakening when I realized the disease is not the drinking and using. Actually, that's one of the examples of my trying to manage my own life. My first solution to alcoholism was alcohol. That's what my mind came up with to give me a solution to alcoholism was drink. And it worked for a while. Yeah? So the second dilemma is the, is the problem. You're probably not haunted by drinking now, but you're haunted by managing. Yes? Trying to control one's life. That's playing God, isn't it? So the whole real high and why of this, how and why of this program is the recognition of playing God. Now, if you try to stop playing God, that's also playing God. Yeah? But if you entertain, you're not that. Yes? You're not what's playing God. If you're not what's playing God... That's not playing God. Yeah? If you try to stop playing God, it's playing God, if you're identified as self. But if you see, just entertain, I'm not self, that's, there is no playing God in that. It's just a recognition. You see the playing God, but you don't see it as you playing God. If you see it as you playing God, the only answer is to stop playing God, which is another form of playing God. Self can't get out of self. Yeah? No matter how much you try to get out of self, that's being in self. Yeah? And there's no point where self will get out of self. There's no point it leaves selfing. None. It can't transcend the problem that it is. It cannot do it. Self, which is the root of the disease, cannot get relief from the root of the disease. There's, the relief is I'm not a self. Yeah? I'm not the noun that the selfing is implying. I'm not the noun that's saying I'm the seer, hearer, feel, tasting, touching. 
I'm actually just the verb of living. I'm not looking at life as, ha as life is happening to me, but I'm looking at life as it's happening. It's a totally different way to travel. When life is happening to you, you have tons of opinions. I don't think this should happen to me. Yes, but it is happening to you, but I don't think it should happen to me. But when you see it as life is happening, it's almost like you've got a little bit of distance. You let it be. Yes, yes, just let it happen, let it happen, let it happen. It's like trying to argue with reality. You lose every time, yeah? So in, in a way, the real re revelation for me wasn't the powerlessness over alcohol. I knew that, but it was the managing. Yes? The incessant trying to control outcomes and people and things. And then when I realized, and then I tried for years to stop that, which was just another way of controlling it, and then I entertained, I not that, which thinks it's doing it. So the doing it kept going on, but what gives it the wallop is my identification as the doer. That's what gives the wallop to the thoughts. It isn't the thought, it's I'm the thinker of the thought. Yes? How can I have immunity to the same thoughts when you share them as yours? Yes? How can I have an immunity when I see the thoughts as yours and have no immunity when I see the same thoughts as mine? Yeah? It can't be the thoughts that bind us. It's the identification as the thinker of the thoughts. Yeah? As what's looking is what you're looking for. Please. What? Please? <laughs> it's like taking golden oldies. All right. Requests. Looking. All right. There's an old statement by St. Francis, yes? He says, what's looking is what you're looking for. And what you came here for is what you came here as. Yes? It's a very beautiful way. I paraphrase that second part. But it's a really nice statement. Yeah? So he's saying, basically, what's looking right now is what you are looking for. Yeah? The reason why you can't recognize it, because you think you know what you is. This. Yeah? So you think it's you that's looking right now, but actually it's what's looking. What's looking is the same thing that's looking out of every one of our eyes. Yes? I would say it's the spirit. Yeah? So what we're all looking for is the spirit that's looking right now. <laughs> so you go where? Where? Exactly. You think you're going to see it, but you're seeing from it. Yeah? You're not going to see what's looking, because you are what's looking. Unfortunately, what's looking is be called, has been called you, and it's the greatest place to hide what's looking when it's called you. Because you believe you know you. I'm this, I'm a body, how could I be what's looking? How can I be looking for with what I am already? So what's looking is what you're looking for. What's seeing is what you're looking for. What is it that you believe we have? Do you ever read Chuck C., a guy, Chuck Chamberlain? He wrote, he was in AA, and he wrote a book called The New Pair of Glasses. Have you heard of it? It's a really cool book. It's about one of his retreats he gave. But in The New Pair of Glasses, I really like that use, because I believe alcoholism is like a pair of glasses, yes? Called self-centeredness. And we've like, we got extreme lenses. We're extremely self-centered, yeah? Most people have self-centered, but we've got extreme self-centeredness. So here we are looking out into life from this point of view of how everything pertains to me, yes? Called self-centeredness. And it's causing a lot of dis-ease in us, yes? A lot of 
irritability, restlessness, and discontent, and seeming unmanageability. Because how we see things, false evidence appear real to us. Yes? False evidence appears real to us quite often. Yes? So what we do is we get a new pair of glasses in AA, which when you wear them, they correct the distortion of the original pair of glasses. Yes? You get a correction in the lenses of alcoholism, and now you see clearer, yes? You start being able to recognize false evidence as false evidence before it appears real, and all like this. But the thing is, alcohol, AA is so incredible because its real point is not to have you become dependent on the glasses, but to lead you to the point of living without glasses, yeah? So you don't live by a form of looking, you actually live by seeing. Just like you saw when you were a kid. If you were in an abusive situation, like between two and four years old, they were my golden years, yeah? When I was a kid, there was no narration about, oh, I'm playing today. There was just playing, yes? When I, I didn't walk around the house and think, oh, my room's too small. My, my mother's really ugly. I wish I had a different mother. And I should have better clothes than I have on. I had no thoughts about that. When I'd be playing, I wasn't worried will I be playing next week because I had no idea of time yet. Yeah? I was totally awake and I didn't know it. That's the beauty of it. That's what awakeness is like. Suddenly, the selfing occurred and I became identified as that. Yes? So the seeing got replaced by a form of looking called self-centeredness, which does one thing. And one thing incredibly well, it blinds you to the scene. It blinds you to the scene. Because now you think you're looking for it as something outside of yourself, something you're going to get when you're actually what's looking. So the solution is immediate. It's not of time. It's always available at all times because it's not of time. And there's no requirement necessary to meet it. You just have to have the willingness to entertain its possibility. Yeah? By entertaining, you may not be that. You may not be the thinker of the thoughts in your head. And I'll tell you, that's the only thought you need to really give up, is that you're the thinker. You don't have to give up the thousands of thoughts that are seen, but give up the original thought that you're the thinker of them all. When you give up that thought, you'll get relief from all the thoughts. Yeah? If you give up being the owner of the body, the body will probably do a lot better without you sitting on top of it like a big mother hen. Yeah? Me and you are not managerial quality. We're not. We're not meant to manage your life. That's the biggest thing I came out of Delancey Street with. I spent two years in that program, two years, 24-7. And when I left, I didn't like those people that much. I didn't like the president. I didn't like how they did things. But I had to admit that my life looked better with them running it than it ever did with me running it. I could look around this room, and I could turn my life... I wouldn't turn my life over to everyone in this room, but I'd turn most people. And you would do a better job with my life than I do. You would. You would have much more wisdom of what I should do than I do. Yeah? Why is that? Why is it that you could turn your life to a complete stranger, and your life will look better with them running it than you? It's the my. The my, the obsession with your life, is what's fucking it up. That's why we get out of self in service, and you feel different, don't you, when you do service in recovery, or you help a newcomer, what do you feel like, don't you feel bigger or lighter, and then when you're out, when, you, when you're feeling that lightness, you sense a presence, yeah, sometimes, do you feel a spiritual uh, presence or an atmosphere, yeah, what happens, you get out of self, you do service, you feel available, and you get a sense of presence, yes, only to have the self claim the, the presence as an experience, 
Then you're back in selfie again. It gets unbearable. You've got to do more service. Get out of it once again. Feel the availability. Sense of presence. The selfie claims it. I just had an experience of the presence. Back into selfie. What would happen if the, t- the sense of presence was called you? Yeah. The sense of presence was seen as you. What would that do? It would make you always available. Yes? Because what is what? What is more available than presence? Nothing. <laughs> presence is present. Yeah? So you'd be more available. And if you're available, what are you? Of service. Maybe you'll do a formal service, but it's not necessary anymore. You're of service. That's how the life is lived. Because you're always available and you're present. Yeah. And you have an immunity that tells you otherwise. Yes? You sense the presence, and that's your validation. Not thoughts about things. You sense it. You sense the presence. You're conscious. Just like it says in AA. You'll get out. One of the big, big things they talk about on page 63. They say, okay, you've been introduced to this idea of relying on something greater than self, to surrender your life to the care of a God, of your own understanding. Yes? The main principle of AA. It says, you sincerely take this position of doing that. What happens? Remarkable things follow. You have a new employer. Being all-powerful, it takes care of you if you perform its works well and stay close to him. Now, it's very difficult to stay far away from everywhere. (laughs) It's very difficult to have any distance between you and everywhere. (laughs) Wherever you are is everywhere. So the first requirement is already met. You can't be far from him. So all you got to do is do some service. So he says, okay, after that happens, what will occur is you'll be established in this position of what? Reliance on something greater than you. Then a whole new set of uh, solutions arise, or let's say effects. Yeah? Now it's like, much, it's like a quantum leap. Now you feel a new power flow in, a new juice. You feel it. You feel some juice. And I'll tell you, if you stay in the admittance of powerlessness, you'll never experience powerlessness. If you forget the admittance of powerlessness and think you have power, you're going to experience being powerless. But when you admit your powerlessness, you never experience being powerless. You always experience power. So here, so now this new power is flowing in. You'll be able to enjoy peace of mind. Yes, Peace of mind is available, but most of us can't enjoy it. We can't enjoy it. We can't rest in that moment because we're so beholden to time. We think even if it's good now, it won't be good later. So you can't enjoy it, yeah? But you'll be able to enjoy peace of mind. Yes? You'll be able that you'll realize that you can face life successfully. I always like to tell this story about my first experience in AA, learning how to face life successfully. I went to my first AA dance, which was my last AA dance. I went there. I sat there on the men's side. And there was a disco ball and a big floor, and the women were over there. Yeah? And no one was moving. The music was on, but there was no dancing going on. So I was picked to be the scout, and they sent me over to the women's side. So I walked across the, the space, and I really liked this girl from afar in AA. And I asked her to dance, and she said no. Yeah? Now, this is what my whole life was about avoiding, was rejection, yes? I mean, my whole life of being playing it so small... The whole point of being so small was to avoid rejection. And here I was rejected. Yes? 
immediately I turned around, and now the, the open field, the open floor looked like a minefield, yeah? And the bis- disco ball was like a spotlight. And I felt everyone was watching me without a scout coming to the other side. <laughs> and my head, my head used, would have just said I didn't like her anyway or rationalized it. But no, for some reason I, let, I, I felt all the feelings that I believed would kill me. And it didn't kill me, yeah? And I learned I could face life successfully. And I used AA as a Petri dish. And I tried a lot of things I would never have tried in life. And I tried it in AA, and I found out I could face life successfully, yeah? Then it says, you'll feel a conscious presence. This is the big, big bonanza. When you're obsessed with self, you're unconscious to the presence of spirit. It's just a fact, obviously, isn't it? Because if supposedly God is everywhere, why aren't you feeling it now then? So when you're obsessed with self, when you're, as a self, is super present, the presence is absence to you. Yes? It's saying now, you'll feel a conscious presence, and you'll basically be reborn. Yes? In other words, relying on self as your system of navigation and dependence will be shifted to a reliance on something greater than self. And what happens is, as that starts occurring, you have immunity to the expressions of self. And if you looked at that statement, if you read the book, read that page, 64, where it says, self is what has defeated us, manifested in various ways. We will now look at its common manifestations, and the next paragraph is resentment. This is how it sounds to me. It sounds like what we're going to do an inventory on is expressions of self in our life. Not my resentments, but the resentments produced by self-identification, yes? Not my fears, but the anxieties produced by being identified as self. Not my harms to others, but the harms that happens through my life when I'm taken over by this fucking parasite. And then, if you look at it as a foreign installment, you can do a fearless and thorough inventory of it, because it's not you. You could do a very fearless inventory over about me right now. I mean, you've just met me. You probably did an inventory of me already. Yeah? But you're totally lost in looking at you. You can do a fearless and thorough inventory because you're not inventorying you. You're inventorying the expressions of self in your life. You're looking at the disease by how it expresses in your life. And by seeing the expressions, you'll recognize the tree. Like Jesus says, you'll know the tree by the fruit. So seeing the expressions of self in your life, by seeing them, you'll be able to recognize the tree from which they came, which is self. Identification of self. So true freedom is often. You can have a radical relief by the inventory process. But every day people are sharing the expressions of self as their own. When they talk, they go, my fears, my resentments. They're in the, pro- the program of recovery, and yet they're pronouncing allegiance to the problem every freaking time they open their mouths. Oh, let me tell you about my fears. Give me a fucking break. You'll never be free of your fears. Why? Because of the your, not the fear. Your. Because... Just like in the book, Freedom from Bondage, where the lady had a big thing about she'd really love to give this resentment up about her mother. It's been, she had it for 30 years, and she, if anyone would just give me the opportunity, I would have dropped this resentment. Then when she starts getting sober, and she realizes, Jesus, I've been nursing this fucking resentment like the cow of all cows. 
I, all my excuses for life are based on what my mother did to me. I'm not giving up. This is like the golden, this is like gold to the parasite. It's not giving up this resentment. The whole delusion she was in is, oh, I'd really like to get rid of this issue. No fucking way. That, that resentment, see what you do. If a miracle happens to you today, you forget it at, by nighttime, I bet you. But you have a resentment that you've been holding for 40 years. It's like you, you have an altar. You've got candles every day. You're thinking about it. What do you think a devotion, a devotee to mind looks like? Not like this, like this. It's just worrying. Worrying up a fucking storm. Jesus Christ. There's a freedom. A radical freedom is there often. In the context of AA, the functioning of AA will produce the platform for freedom to be entertained. Its functioning is beautiful. It's sound principles. It creates guardrails so that life can go in a certain balanced, safe and secure manner. And then freedom can be entertained while you're traveling light. Yeah. But how much light's being put into the functioning is very dim because we don't even have the disease recognized and what the real source of it is. And we're claiming its expression still to this day. 30 years of sobriety. They're still claiming the expressions. Yeah. How can you be free from what you're identified as? How can you really expect radical relief from the problem if you're identified as the problem? It's like... You're just going to get jaded and cynical. You're going to have too many years and not enough days in recovery, yeah? You're going to have a big recovery resume, but no quality to it. And then you'll have pride around your sobriety, and you may be suffering like crazy, but you won't share it. Because you think you should be superior to that. And then you'll fucking either blow your brains out or something else, or you'll start drinking again after 20 years. Because I don't care how much philosophy you have and all this, anything, the only true solution to dissatisfaction is satisfaction. Truly. And there's an opportunity to be have a satisfied life. It just won't be had as a self. It's like St. Francis also says, it's, it's in self-forgetting that we're reborn. Yeah? To me, self-forgetting is you lose interest in the selfing. Why? Because it's not about you. I always use this example, but I'll use it again. Because it's a very way to describe it. Let's say there's another room back here. And there's a girl there with a couple of friends of hers. And I'm interested in that girl. I'd like to know her biblically, let's say, you know. I want to get it on with her, maybe. But I'm afraid of rejection, so I'm not going to ask her out. So I'm less trying to hear what she's saying, because I'm hoping she's going to say something about me, yeah? So here I am in a room supposed to be doing something, but my interest and attention is in that room. Because that is significantly has more meaning than what's happening now, yeah? Because that woman's going to save me. It's going to be great when I'm with her. I mean, it's really going to be, it's never going to be like it, the way that it's going to be. So my interest and attention is really into hearing what she has to say. Someone says, hey, Paul, you're supposed to be here in the room. I can agree with you, but I can't seem to help myself. Yeah? Someone comes and throws the book on the table. How to lose interest in conversations in another room. Read it, Paul. You need it. I skim through it, but it's not helping me. Yeah? Because I'm really keenly interested in what she has to say about me. What happens when she finally starts talking and she's talking about Matt and my name is Paul? What happens? I lose interest immediately in that conversation. Immediately. 
I don't have to take a workshop. I don't have to study books. My interest goes right off of that topic. And where? Where does it go? Here. To be distributed by what? Either your head or let's say your spirit. It's there. It's your, it's your money in life. Interest and attention is what enlivens your life or drives you crazy. Yeah? It's the interest and attention and thoughts as yours that keep you up at night. You can't seem to take your eyes off the screen, can you? It just keeps representing the day. It could have been better if I wouldn't have said that. If I only would have done this. If, 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 if. <laughs> the interest and attention gets freed from that, and then it can be distributed. This is where the real shift from reliance on self to reliance on something greater than self occurs. What starts distributing your interest and attention is what's greater than self. Yeah? Then, like Jesus said again, you'll have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Everyone has eyes and ears, but we're not seeing and hearing. Because we're looking in a self-centered manner. Yeah? And we're taking it to be us. And therefore, you can't entertain taking the glasses off. You think they're your eyes. You actually think self-centeredness is the way you see. It's just a pair of glasses that's been given to us. Yeah? You have the possibility of taking them off, but if you're identified as them, you can't. You'll never entertain that idea. That's what shifted everything for me. When I saw self as a foreign installment, the whole ball game shifted. What I thought was some experiences called peace, I could be in a state of peace. Yeah? Not an experience of it that's infrequent and comes and goes, but a state that the irritable restlessness and discontent could flip, be flipped over, and now I have a level of faith and ease and comfort. Yes? And every once in a while things spike. Instead of having a baseline of irritable restlessness and discontent, and every, time, every once in a while peace would spike. Yeah? Totally flipped over. Totally flipped over. So we're all in the functioning of AA. Could you imagine if what if you could just change the wiring of the electrical system of that functioning? Instead of 25 watts, 100 watts? So things would be brighter and clearer? Things wouldn't be based on hearsay or bullshit belief, but you would actually find out what your God is like by it moving through you. It's like here in this room. I like all these little analogies. <laughs> Let's say right now if we turn these lights off in this room, what would happen? A lot of problems would arise, yeah? Let's say if you haven't been in this room before, you wouldn't know where the bathroom was, would you? And if I got up, I'd hit, my, I'd hit my legs against a lot of furniture here. And maybe I'd bump into you and you'd get pissed off at me, yeah? So what happens? What happens? What happens is people who have been here before start making maps and start selling it to the people who haven't been here before. I think this is the way to get to the bathroom. Five bucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Knee pads are sold so that you don't hurt yourself when you hit that thing. Preemptive apologies before you bump into the person. Instead of just turning on the light. All the problems we're experiencing as quote-unquote reality are just the absence of light. We're not seeing, we're looking. We're looking from a place of self-centeredness, which is a form of blindness. Yeah? Obviously. 
The light goes on. Do I need knee pads? I can see the furniture. Do I need to buy a map of where the bathroom was? I can see the sign. Yeah? I don't have to apologize to you because I'm not going to bump into you. What's the difference? Absence of light or light. And it says in recovery, any knowledge that's claimed by self, it says self-knowledge avails us nothing. So any knowledge that you ever hear about self, if self is claiming it as the one who has the knowledge, that knowledge avails us nothing. It doesn't lead us to the freedom from self. It doesn't lead us to the freedom from self. That's why it says self-knowledge avails us nothing. Any knowledge claimed by self is neutered. It doesn't bring you the freedom it may have pointed to, because it's pointing it to you and you receive it as the problem. Yes? Man. The funny thing is, I try, you know, I share it a lot, yes? But it's, I'm so clear, you know, it's so right to me. <laughs> and uh, my great joy is attempting to sort of present it so it can trigger something in you. That's the joy. I have the joy of it, yeah? But I'd really like to see the joy of being had by you. And so I do the best I can to present what we're not as clearly as possible because I can't present what you are because you're that, yes? But I can present what you're not so when you see what you're not, yes, that was being called what you are, there'll be a feeling I'm not that. You can never see what's seen. What you are can never be experienced. You can never, the eye can never see itself. It's seeing everything in this room, but it can't turn around and see itself, because it's the seeing. What we are cannot be an experience. We are what we're looking for, but you can't know it or experience it. You can just live as it. Yes. It's a totally different way to go. It's on offer. All you need is the ability to entertain it. To me... You've received, like, this is like a spiritual subpoena. You've been served, yeah? <laughs> I'm like a mailman. I just invited you. Yeah? So maybe, just maybe, when you read the book and it says self, you'll see it in a different light and see if you travel with it a different way. Maybe it isn't, it isn't your will that's unsuccessful here. It's self-will. Any life run on self's will is unsuccessful. Your will, I think, actually matches what they call the intention of the higher power for us, which is to be happy, joyous, and free. I would say what, if you want to call it your will, it's more aligned with that, the intention of the higher power, which is happiness, joyousness, and freedom. I don't think you can say that about self's will. Can you? If it was so powerful, you'd be already there then, happiness and joyousness and freedom. When's it going to deliver the goods? When you call the factory and you say, hey, I'd like to have my happiness now, what does it tell you? Well, uh, there's a backup. Uh, no, the layaway plan, uh, five more years, you know. Does it ever deliver the goods? Or is it just a giant advertising campaign? Any system that fails, any system that works, does not need excuses, blame, and rationalization. You have to see... This mind rationalizes its own ineptness, excuses its own ineptness, and blames others for its own ineptness. Self-will is not reliable. Self-reliance is unreliable. 
That's the understanding. It's never going to be reliable. It may be more manageable to you, but it will never be reliable. You may have ten years of peace and calm, and it will flip out one night. It's never going to be reliable. Never. Never. <laughs> Any questions? I could go on and on. I mean, you're my tribe, so I'm very interested in, in point, putting it out with you. I've been sober for 23 years, yeah? There was a hell that I was in. Obviously, I wasn't in it, but the experience of hell was pretty strong. And hell came from exactly what I'm talking about. Being identified as what I wasn't. Yes? The best I could hope for is like finding a corner in hell that was like one or two degrees less hot than the rest of hell. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like trying to, you think you're doing better because you're closer to the door, the exit door at the insane asylum. <laughs> you're still in the insane asylum. <laughs> so it's sort of like, you know, an AA. I have a great loyalty to AA because it took me out of hell. Yeah? And so we come back here and we say, hey, hey, if you're really serious about being out of hell instead of just fucking talking about it, there's a bus that stops, yes? Get on it. But let me tell you why I've never got on the bus. I don't care. Get on the bus. I've been waiting for this bus. Get on the bus, yes? There's freedom available. All the time, with no requirement necessary. Just an entertaining of the possibility, and it may be all start. Yeah? Thank you, yes? Yeah, I have a question. Yes. Uh, it seems like I've spoken to a lot of people that go through this transition of being the watcher of the thought. Yes. And some spiritual teachers teach. And then relinquishing that. Yes. As not. Well, there's no one that relinquishes it. Well, it just disappears. Its emphasis shifts. Yes. Yeah. See, to be the watcher of the thoughts, you'd still be the subject. There is, there is only one subject, let's say spirit, and you and I are objects that that spirit moves through. The object with the mental process claims to be the subject, and that's the dilemma. Yeah? So to be the watcher of the thoughts is still putting you as the subject to the thoughts. There's no watcher of any thoughts. There's just thinking. There's just feeling. There's just seeing. There's just hearing. There's just tasting. It's like an incredible, never-ending stream of verbing herbs, you know, movement, just energy manifesting. There's no one it manifests to, and there's no one it manifests from. It's just manifesting. That's my take on it, yeah? The noun is where the, the, the dilemma happens, yes? Because now, let's say there's water rushing, water rushing, and then you put a, na- a rock in there, and then there'll be currents that will go around. It will change the flow of the water, yes? Certain water will start going around the rock. That's what it's like. When you become a a self or a body, you take yourself out of the flow of life and you become a noun. So now life looks like it's happening to you or by you or as you or for you. But it's not really sensed as it's it's just happening. When When you're in the verbing of it, life has a strong feeling of just happening. Yeah? Not to you. 
one of the happenings is the presentation of a you. A you. Yeah? When the mind falls for that or believes it, the A drops and now it's you. And that's when self-centeredness really starts. Yes? Locks in place. Yes, yes, yes. And that's what we're suffering from. We think it's things outside of ourselves that are bothering us, but it's not the case. I can give you an example, a, a simple formatted one in the fourth step workshops I used to do. There's, let's say the obsession with self is the active uh, root of the problem, yeah? Being obs- listening to your thoughts, believing the thoughts all day about what's not happening is really, because every thought is held as you're the thinker of it. So that's really where the bonding is, yeah? So let's just say the root of the problem is obsession with self, yes? And I'm going to use a balloon to represent self. And I'm going to use air to represent obsession, okay? So here's a balloon, and air is going to represent obsession. And here's me, yes? And thinking is going to represent obsession, yes? Now, I have a big agenda, and I have a lot of ideas what will signify that I'm happy, yes? I have a big agenda. The balloon has one agenda, not to be popped. Yeah? Now, the way I have all my gauges for happiness, I have a lot of gauges, too, how I'm doing. But I want to be, let's say, happy, joyous, and free. And I have ideas what that would look like. Yeah? The balloons, its gauge is the thickness and thinness of its skin. If its skin is too thin, it's apt to be popped. Yeah? So that's the major threat to its agenda, is the thinness of its skin. Yes? Yes, yes. So here's the obsession with self as demonstrated in this example of balloon. So the balloon is obsessed with itself. So it's constantly blowing itself up with air, yes? As it blows itself up with air, what happens? The skin gets thinner. Being conscious, it becomes conscious, hey, the skin's getting thinner, and its thought immediately is, I could be popped, which is its major threat. It does not want to be popped, yeah? So what happens? Self-centered fear arises in the balloon. It's now worried based on the thinness of its skin. Yes? What happens? It's still obsessed with self. The skin keeps getting thinner. Now, it's not just in fear. It looks around its environment at what it thinks can pop it. It doesn't have to have the ability to pop it. It just needs the balloon to think it can pop it. And it becomes an object of resentment. Yes? So it looks around. It sees, let's say, an exposed light. It says, if I get near that light, I can be popped. So it starts resenting that light. You know, that, that light's a threat. And a cigarette, a lit cigarette. Oh, Jesus, if I touch that cigarette, bye-bye. Yes? Let's say a sharp angle on the TV. If I hit that TV, boo! Yeah? So now it's in fear, a lot of fear, and it's looking around its environment, and it's seeing what threatens its, ex- its agenda. Yes? And it's starting to have resentments toward those things. It's starting to get angry at those things. Yeah? Now what happens is, what all, the only thing you can do is use the problem to get out of the problem. <laughs> now the skin is really, really thin. A large amount of fear is captivated by fear. And now, instead of just resenting that cigarette, it resents Winston-Salem. Not the exposed light, but the electric company that's giving all lights light. Uh, it just has a blanket resentment now. This is what we look like with untreated alcoholism. We're relying on something that's unreliable, so we don't, we really don't believe we're ever going to get what we really, really deeply believe we need. We don't really believe we're going to get it. (laughs) So we're living in a lot of anxiety about that, and because of that, we're feeling like anything could stop us from getting what we need. 
Yeah, because we're in a very weak position. What happens in AA? It says, do the steps and you'll defa- deflate the ego. What happens? So really, the resentments and, and fear you're having are based on the size of the balloon. Yes? Yes? In other words, there aren't like a thousand resentments out there that you've been unlucky to run into. And there's only like 80 fears that you've run into 70 of them. Your condition is actually what's producing the fear and the threats, yes? Your seeing a threat is what causes the threat to seem real, yeah? Yeah. And the fear is not being produced by outside, but really by your belief that it's not going to go my way, probably, yeah? So what would happen if the balloon, some of the obsession was let out of it? It got out of self, let's say. What would happen? The, th- the skin would actually get thicker, yeah? As soon as the s- skin started to get thicker, the self-centered fear would recede. Because you would feel as a balloon, hey, I'm not going to be popped. So you wouldn't be afraid to get 20 yards away from the exposed light. You're not going to get popped. Your skin's pretty thick. You can probably be pretty close to a light. You could be close to a smoker and not have any threat or fear. Yes? It's all based on the size of the obsession, yeah? The amount of resentment and fear you're in. Yes, it's really clear, good to see this. Because it's, it's about you that that's that. You and I give everything the meaning it has. Everything the meaning it has here. Yeah? If you're totally absorbed in self, what's giving your life the meaning it has is self. It's a very small system. We've all had it. We've had all the meanings it gives things. That's why we're identified with each other. We've been living, we've been being we've been fed and harvested and cultured and looked over and run by the same system. We know what we're talking about. There is a freedom, there is a solution. Then when they say in that statement, the problem will not exist for you, yeah? It's an incredible statement. Would you want a long lasting solution like that when the problem does not exist as you? then it will seem like the problem does not exist for you anymore. <laughs> You're really on to something then. Yes, yes? Yeah, you got some long-term traveling lighter ahead of you. <laughs> so I can't, that's it, eh? Any little questions? I could keep going on, but it's, you, don't want to ki- you, don't, you don't want to beat a dead horse. It's an invitation. I have total confidence in the mind. Total confidence. I know that there's a knowing there. I know it. Yeah? It's just a matter of slipping an invitation in there. No questions, more questions? No? As they say, it's neither good nor bad. It just is. For me, it's really good. And get out of here. This is my last night. It's cool. When are you going back? Tomorrow. No, I'm not going back tomorrow. Hey, we have a website, zenbitchslap.com. Yeah? I do tons of talks, and you can download them. They're all free and just... And if you go, if they're all dated, 
If you want to hear it more framed in AA, the Monday nights are, were more AA than the Wednesdays and Saturdays. So they're all dated. So if you coordinate the, you know, the dates with Mondays, they'll be more framed by AA talk. You know. The other two are more free range. You know. The whole beautiful thing is we're on to something. It's so great if you see, because if you spend a lot of money to remedy a cold and you misdiagnose yourself, you had the flu, we're just attempting to sort of maybe clarify the root of the problem. It may not be obsession with self. It may be identification as self. And I'll tell you, from my own entertaining it, it seems to be true by the relief I've had. Yeah. Yeah. You'll know the problem by the solution. So, I didn't know the problem as obsession with self. It kept going, but I knew the problem by its solution. When I entertained, I wasn't that. I started having radical relief from the problem. <laughs> I must have hit the nail on the head, so to speak. So I'm just passing it on, as we do. <laughs> yeah. And thank you, Dennis, for having me. Thank you for being here. Thank you.